Hi there, welcome back to the Comfortable Silence podcast stream. Uh, I am Bateman. We're going to do another couple of stories today. The last episode we did sort of one long story. Um, the next couple of stories in my in my book of Japanese ghost stories are uh, quite short. Um, so I'll read them one after another with a bit of a pause in the middle. Uh, just to let you know, the first story has a bit of body horror sort of creepiness to it so um, sort of a content warning for that um, it's a little bit odd so uh, don't, don't listen if that's not the kind of thing that you enjoy also just a little bit of vocabulary um, in this first story a daimyo is a type of feudal lord of, a, of an area so without any further ado, here is the first story. Um, it's called Ingwa Banashi. Ingwa Banashi. The daimyo's wife was dying, and she knew that she was dying. She had not been able to leave her bed since the early autumn of the 10th Bunsei. It was now the fourth month of the 12th Bunsei, the year 1829 by Western counting, and the cherry trees were blossoming. She thought of the cherry trees in her garden, and of the gladness of spring. She thought of her children. She thought of her husband's various concubines, especially the Lady Yukiko, nineteen years old. My dear wife, said the daimyo, you have suffered very much for three long years. We have done all that we could to get you well, watching beside you night and day, praying for you, and often fasting for your sake. But in spite of our loving care, and in spite of the skill of our best physicians, it would now seem that the end of your life is not far off. Probably we shall sorrow more than you will sorrow because of your having to leave what the Buddha so truly termed this burning house of the world. I shall order to be performed, no matter what the cost. Every religious rite that can serve you in regard to your next rebirth, and all of us will pray without ceasing for you, so that you may not have to wander in the black space, but may quickly enter paradise and attain to Buddhahood. He spoke with the utmost tenderness, caressing her the while. Then, with eyelids closed, she answered him in a voice thin as the voice of an insect. I am grateful, most grateful, for your kind words. Yes, it is true, as you say, that I have been sick for three long years, and that I have been treated with all possible care and affection. Why, in why indeed should I turn away from the one true path at the very moment of my death? Perhaps to think of worldly matters at such a time is not right. But I have one last request to make, only one. Call here to me the Lady Yukiko. You know that I love her like a sister. I want to speak to her about the affairs of this household. Yukiko came at the summons of the Lord, in obedience to a sign from him, knelt down beside the couch. The daimyo's wife opened her eyes and she looked at Yukiko and spoke. Ah, here is Yukiko. I am so pleased to see you, Yukiko. Come a little closer, so that you may hear me well. I am not able to speak loud. Yukiko... I am going to die, and I hope that you will be faithful in all things to our dear Lord, for I want you to take my place when I am gone. I hope that you will always be loved by him, yes, even a hundred times more than I have been, and that you will very soon be promoted to a higher rank and become his honoured wife, and I beg of you always to cherish our dear Lord, never allow another woman to rob you of his affection. This is what I wanted to say to you, dear Yukiko. Have you been able to understand? Oh, my dear lady, protested Yukiko. Do not, I entreat you, say such strange things to me. You well know that I am of poor and mean condition. How could I ever dare to aspire to become the wife of our lord? 
Nay, nay, returned the wife huskily, this is not a time for words of ceremony. Let us speak only the truth to each other. After my death, you will certainly be promoted to a higher place, and I now assure you again that I wish you to become the wife of our lord. Yes, I wish this, Yukiko, even more than I wish to become a Buddha. I had almost forgotten. I want you to do something for me, Yukiko. You know that in the garden there is a Yei Zakura, which was brought here the year before last from Mount Yoshino in Yamoto. I have been told that it is now in full bloom, and I very much wanted to see it in flower. In a little while I shall be dead. I must see that tree before I die. Now I wish you to carry me into the garden. At once, Yukiko, so that I can see it. Yes, upon your back, Yukiko. Take me upon your back. While thus asking, her voice had gradually become clear and strong, as if the intensity of the wish had given her new force. Then she suddenly burst into tears. Yukiko knelt motionless, not knowing what to do, but the Lord nodded assent. It is her last wish in this world, he said. She always loved cherry flowers, and I know that she wanted very much to see that Yamoto tree in blossom. Come, my dear Yukiko, let her have her will. As a nurse turns her back to a child that the child may cling to it, Yukiko offered her shoulders to the wife and said, Lady, I am ready. Please tell me how I best can help you. Why this way? responded the dying woman, lifting herself with an almost superhuman effort by clinging onto Yukiko's shoulders. But as she stood erect, she quickly slipped her thin hands down over the shoulders under the robe and clutched the breasts of the girl and burst into a wicked laugh. I have my wish, she cried. I have my wish for the cherry bloom, but not the cherry bloom of the garden. I could not die before I got my witch. Now I have it. Oh, what a delight! And with these words she fell forward upon the crouching girl and died. The attendants at once attempted to lift the body from Yukiko's shoulders and to lay it upon the bed. But, strange to say, this seemingly easy thing could not be done. The cold hands had attached themselves in some unaccountable way to the breasts of the girl, appeared to have grown into the quick flesh. Yukiko became senseless with fear and pain. Physicians were called. They could not understand what had taken place. By no ordinary methods could the hands of the dead woman be unfastened from the body of her victim. They so clung that any effort to remove them brought blood. This was not because the fingers held. It was because the flesh of the palms had united itself in some inexplicable manner to the flesh of the breasts. At that time, the most skillful physician in Yedo was a foreigner, a Dutch surgeon. It was decided to summon him. After a careful examination, he said that he could not understand the case, and that for the immediate relief of Yukiko, there is nothing to be done except to cut the hands from the corpse. He declared that it would be dangerous to attempt to detach them from the breasts. His advice was accepted, and the hands were amputated at the risks. But they remained clinging to the breasts, and there they soon darkened and dried up, like the hands of a person long dead. Yet this was only the beginning of the horror. Withered and bloodless though they seemed, those hands were not dead. At intervals they would stir, stealthily like great grey spiders. And nightly thereafter, beginning always at the hour of the ox, they would clutch and compress and torture. Only at the hour of the tiger the pain would cease. Yukiko cut off her hair and became a nun, taking the religious name of Dasetsu. She had an ihai maid, bearing the kaimyo of her dead mistress, Myoko in den chizam ryo fu daishi, and this she carried about with her in all her wanderings. Then every day before it, she humbly besought the dead for pardon and performed a Buddhist service in order that the jealous spirit might find rest. But the evil karma that had rendered such an affliction possible could not soon be exhausted. 
every night at the hour of the ox the hands never failed to torture her during more than 17 years according to the testimony of those persons to whom she last told her story when she stopped for one evening at the house of Noguchi Denzogaimon in the village of Tanaka in the district of Kawachi in the province of Shimotsuke. This was in the third year of Kokwa, 1846. Thereafter, nothing more was ever heard of her. So that one was pretty interesting. Um, kind of uh, raises a few more questions than it answers, but I suppose is a story about beauty and jealousy uh, in the main. Anywho, um, we will get on to the next story. The next story is called The Gratitude of the Samebito. Samebito are a type of uh, Japanese yokai, a, a sort of um, mythical beast, um, somewhat like mermaids, I suppose. Um, but you'll see from their description that they're not quite as um, sort of alluring as, as the Western type of mermaids. Uh, also in this story, it mentions um, Ryugu, which is essentially sort of the Japanese version of Atlantis, a very sort of mythical uh, undersea kingdom. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this story. The Gratitude of the Samebito There was a man named Tawaraya Totoro, who lived in the province of Omi. His house was situated on the shore of Lake Biwa, not far from the famous temple called Ishiyamadera. He had some property and lived in comfort, but at the age of 29 he was still unmarried. His greatest ambition was to marry a very beautiful woman, and he had not been able to find a girl to his liking. One day, as he was passing over the long bridge of Seta, he saw a strange being crouching close to the parapet. The body of this being resembled the body of a man, but was black as ink. Its face was like the face of a demon, its eyes were green as emeralds, and its beard was like the beard of a dragon. Totoro was at first very much startled, but the green eyes looked at him so gently that after a moment's hesitation he ventured to question the creature. Then it answered him, saying, I am a Samibito, a shark man of the sea, and until a short time ago I was in the service of the eight great dragon kings as a subordinate officer in the dragon palace, the Ryugu. But because of a small fault which I committed, I was dismissed from the dragon palace and also banished from the sea. Since then I have been wandering about here, unable to get any food or even a place to lie down. If you can feel any pity for me, do, I beseech you, help me to find a shelter and let me have something to eat. This petition was uttered in so plaintive a tone, and in so humble a manner, that Totoro's heart was touched. Come with me, he said. There is in my garden a large and deep pond where you may live as long as you wish, and I will give you plenty to eat. The Samibito followed Totoro home, and appeared to be much pleased with the pond. Thereafter, for nearly half a year, this strange guest dwelt in the pond, and every day was supplied by Totoro with such food as sea creatures like. Now, in the seventh month of the same year, there was a female pilgrimage to the great Buddhist temple called Miidera in the neighbouring town of Otsu, and Totoro went to Otsu to attend the festival. 
Among the multitude of women and young girls there assembled, he observed a person of extraordinary beauty. She seemed about sixteen years old. Her face was fair and pure as snow, and the loveliness of her lips assured the beholder that their every utterance would sound as sweet as the voice of a nightingale singing upon a plum tree. Totoro fell in love with her at sight. When she left the temple he followed her at a respectful distance, and discovered that she and her mother were staying for a few days at a certain house in the neighbouring village of Seta. By questioning some of the village folk, he was able to also to learn that her name was Tamana, that she was unmarried, and that her family appeared to be unwilling that she should marry a man of ordinary rank, for they demanded as a betrothal gift a casket containing 10,000 jewels. Totoro returned home very much dismayed by this information. The more that he thought about the strange betrothal gift demanded by the girl's parents, the more he felt that he could never expect to obtain her for his wife. Even supposing there were as many as 10,000 jewels in the whole country, only a great prince could hope to procure them. But not even for a single hour could Totoro banish from his mind the memory of that beautiful being. It haunted him so that he could neither eat nor sleep, and it seemed to become more and more vivid as the days went by. And at last he became ill, so ill that he could not lift his head from the pillow. Then he sent for a doctor. The doctor, after having made a careful examination, uttered an exclamation of surprise. Almost any kind of sickness, he said, can be cured by proper medical treatment, except the sickness of love. Your ailment is evidently love sickness. There is no cure for it. In ancient times, Roya Ohakyo died of that sickness, and you must prepare yourself to die as he died. So saying, the doctor went away, without even giving any medicine to Totoro. About this time, the shark man that was living in the garden pond heard of his master's sickness, and came into the house to wait upon Totoro, and he tended him with the utmost affection both by day and by night, but he did not know either the cause or the serious nature of the sickness until nearly a week later, when Totoro, thinking himself about to die, uttered these words of farewell. I suppose that I have had the pleasure of caring for you thus long, because of some relation that grew up between us in a former state of existence. But now I am very sick indeed, and every day my sickness becomes worse, and my life is like the morning dew which passes away before the setting of the sun. For your sake, therefore, I am troubled in mind. Your existence has depended upon my care, and I fear that there will be no one to care for you and to feed you when I am dead. My poor friend, alas! Our hopes and wishes are always disappointed in this unhappy world. No sooner had Totoro spoken these words than the Samibito uttered a strange wild cry of pain and began to weep bitterly, and as he wept great tears of blood streamed from his green eyes and rolled down his black cheeks and dripped upon the floor. And falling they were blood, but having fallen they became hard and bright and beautiful, became jewels of inestimable price, rubies splendid as crimson fire, for when men of the sea weep their tears become precious stones. Then Totoro, beholding this marvel, was so amazed and overjoyed that his strength returned to him. He sprang from his bed and began to pick up and count the tears of the shark man, crying out the while, My sickness is cured, I shall live, I shall live. Therewith the shark man, greatly astonished, ceased to weep, and he asked Totoro to explain this wonderful cure. And Totoro told him about the young person seen at Miidera, and about the extraordinary marriage gift demanded by her family. As I felt sure, added Totoro, that I should never be able to get 10,000 jewels, I supposed that my suit would be hopeless. Then I became very unhappy, and at last fell sick. But now, because of your generous weeping, I have that many precious stones, and I think that I shall be able to marry that girl. Only, there are not yet quite enough stones. 
and I beg that you will be good enough to weep a little more, so as to make up the full number required. But at this request the Samibito shook his head, and answered in a tone of surprise and of reproach, Do you think that I am like a harlot, able to weep whenever I wish? Oh no, harlots shed tears in order to deceive men, but creatures of the sea cannot weep without feeling real sorrow. I wept for you because of the true grief that I felt in my heart at the thought you were going to die, but now I cannot weep for you, because you have told me that your sickness is cured. Then what am I to do? plaintively asked Totoro. Unless I can get ten thousand jewels, I cannot marry the girl. The Samibito remained for a while silent, as if thinking. Then he said, Listen, today I cannot possibly weep any more, but tomorrow let us go together to the long bridge of Seta, taking with us some wine and some fish. We can rest for a time on the bridge, and while we are drinking the wine and eating the fish, I shall gaze in the direction of the Dragon Palace, and try, by thinking of the happy days that I spent there, to make myself feel homesick, so that I can weep. Totoro joyfully assented. Next morning the two, taking plenty of wine and fish with them, went to the Seta Bridge, and rested there and feasted. After having drunk a great deal of wine, the Samibito began to gaze in the direction of the Dragon Kingdom, and to think about the past and gradually under the softening influence of the wine, the memory of happier days filled his heart with sorrow, and the pain of homesickness came upon him, so that he could weep profusely, and the great red tears that he shed fell upon the bridge in a shower of rubies, and Totoro gathered them as they fell, and put them into a casket, and counted them until he had counted the full number of ten thousand, then he uttered a shout of joy. Almost in the same moment, from far away over the lake, a delightful sound of music was heard, and there appeared in the offing, slowly rising from the waters like some fabric of cloud, a palace of the colour of the setting sun. At once the Samibito sprang upon the parapet of the bridge, and looked and laughed for joy. Then, turning to Totoro, he said, There must have been a general amnesty proclaimed in the Dragon Realm. The kings are calling me, so now I must bid you farewell. I am happy to have one chance of befriending you in return for your goodness to me. With these words he leaped from the bridge, and no man ever saw him again. But Totoro presented the casket of red jewels to the parents of Tamana, and so obtained her in marriage. So that was a sort of more joyful ending, I suppose, um, in that last story. A um, little bit of a uh, no one, no one ever really asked uh, the uh, Tamana's opinion on whether she wanted to get married. Um, and the idea of a of a twenty nine year old marrying a sixteen year old is a uh, not really okay in in our current um, time, but uh, it's still you know quite a nice story about friendship. I think uh, the next story is called "Of a Promise Kept." Uh, the only real clarification in this one is that a re is a unit of distance equivalent to about two and a half miles. Of a promise kept. I shall return in the early autumn, said Akana Soyemon several hundred years ago when bidding goodbye to his brother by adoption, young Hasabe Samon. The time was spring and the place was the village of Kato in the province of Harima. Akana was an Izumo samurai and he wanted to visit his birthplace. Hasabe said, Your Izumo, the country of the Eight Cloud Rising, is very distant. Perhaps it will therefore be difficult for you to promise to return here upon any particular day. But if we were to know the exact day, we should feel happier. 
We could then prepare a feast of welcome, and we could watch at the gateway for your coming. Why, as for that, responded Akana, I have been so much accustomed to travel that I can usually tell beforehand how long it'll take me to reach a place, and I can safely promise you to be here upon a particular day. Suppose we say the day of the festival Choyo? That is the ninth day of the ninth month, said Hasabe. Then the chrysanthemums will be in bloom, and we can go together to look at them. How pleasant. So, you promise to come back on the ninth day of the ninth month? On the ninth day of the ninth month, repeated Akana, smiling farewell. Then he strode away from the village of Kato, in the province of Harima, and Hasabe Samon and the mother of Hasabe looked after him with tears in their eyes. Neither the sun nor the moon, says an old Japanese proverb, ever halt upon their journey. Swiftly the months went by, and the autumn came, the season of chrysanthemums, and early upon the morning of the ninth day of the ninth month, Hasabi prepared to welcome his adopted brother. He made ready a feast of good things, bought wine, decorated the guest room, and filled the vases of the alcove with chrysanthemums of two colours. Then his mother, watching him, said, The province of Izumo, my son, is more than one hundred ri from this place, and the journey thence over the mountains is difficult and weary and you cannot be sure that Akana will be able to come today. Would it not be better, before you take all this trouble, to wait for his coming? Nay, mother, Hasabi made answer. Akana promised to be here today. He could not break a promise. And if he were to see us beginning to make preparation after his arrival, he would know that we had doubted his word, and we should be put to shame. The day was beautiful, the sky without a cloud, and the air so pure that the world seemed to be a thousand miles wider than usual. In the morning, many travellers passed through the village, some of them samurai, and Hasabi, watching each as he came, more than once imagined that he saw Akana approaching. But the temple bells sounded the hour of midday, and Akana did not appear. Through the afternoon also, Hasabi watched and waited in vain. The sun set, and still there was no sign of Akana. Nevertheless, Hasabi remained at the gate, gazing down the road. Later, his mother went to him and said, the mind of a man, my son, as our proverb declares, may change as quickly as the sky of autumn, but your chrysanthemum flowers will still be fresh tomorrow. Better now to sleep, and in the morning you can watch again for Akane if you wish. Rest well, mother, returned Hasebe, but I still believe that he will come. Then the mother went to her own room, and Hasebe lingered at the gate. The night was pure as the day had been. All the sky throbbed with stars, and the white river of heaven shimmered with unusual splendour. The village slept, the silence was broken only by the noise of a little brook, and by the faraway barking of peasants' dogs. Hasebe still waited, waited until he saw the thin moon sink behind the neighbouring hills. Then at last he began to doubt and to fear. Just as he was about to re-enter the house, he perceived in the distance a tall man approaching, very lightly and quickly, and in the next moment he recognised Akana. Oh, cried Hasebe, springing to meet him, I have been waiting for you from the morning until now. So you really did keep your promise after all. But you must be tired, poor brother. Come in, everything is ready for you. He guided Akana to the place of honour in the guest room, and hastened to trim the lights which were burning low. Mother, continued Hosebe, felt a little tired this evening, and she has already gone to bed, but I shall awaken her presently. Akana shook his head and made a little gesture of disapproval. As you will, brother, said Hosebe, and he set warm food and wine before the traveller. Akana did not touch the food or the wine, but remained motionless and silent for a short time. Then, speaking in a whisper, as if fearful of awakening the mother, he said, Now I must tell you how it happened that I came thus late. 
When I returned to Izumo, I found that the people had almost forgotten the kindness of our former ruler, the good Lord Enya, and were seeking the favour of the usurper Tsunehisa, who had possessed himself of the Tonda castle. But I had to visit my cousin at the Kanatanji, although he had accepted service under Tsunehisa, and was living as a retainer within the castle grounds. He persuaded me to present myself before Tsunehisa. I yielded chiefly in order to observe the character of the new ruler, whose face I had never seen. He is a skilled soldier and of great courage, but he is cunning and cruel. I found it necessary to let him know that I could never enter into his service. After I left his presence, he ordered my cousin to detain me, to keep me confined within the house. I protested that I had promised to return to Harima upon the ninth day of the ninth month, but I was refused permission to go. I then hoped to escape from the castle at night, but I was constantly watched, and until today I could find no way to fulfil my promise. Until today? exclaimed Hosebe in bewilderment. The castle is more than a hundred ri from here. Yes, returned Akana, and no living man can travel on foot a hundred ri in one day. But I felt that if I did not keep my promise, you could not well think of me, and I remembered the ancient proverb, Tamayoku ichi nichi ni senri wo yuku. The soul of a man can journey a thousand ri in a day. Fortunately, I have been allowed to keep my sword, thus only was I able to come to you. Be good to our mother. With these words he stood up and in the same instant disappeared. At earliest dawn, Hasebe Samon set out for the castle Tonda in the province of Izumo. Reaching Matsue, he there learned that on the night of the ninth day of the ninth month, Akana Soyemon had performed harakiri in the house of Akana Tanji in the grounds of the castle. Then Hasebe went to the house of Akanatanji and reproached Akanatanji for the treachery done and slew him in the midst of his family and escaped without hurt. And when the Lord Tsunehisa heard the story, he gave commands that Hasebe should not be pursued, for although an unscrupulous and cruel man himself, the Lord Tsunehisa could respect the love of truth in others and could admire the friendship and the courage of Hasebe Samon. So I think that'll do it for this episode. Um, three somewhat different stories, but with a kind of running theme throughout. Um, I hope you enjoyed yourselves, and I'll be back again soon with more stories. Bye!